It's a good reminders. Not only is it good to worship, it's good to be taught by our worship that Jesus is enough. Because there are so many temptations in life, some of them subtle, some of them not so subtle, for everything else to be enough. In that sense, I want to tell you uh, a, a different parable of sorts this morning, but if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew 25, where we'll be in a little bit. But I want to begin with a parable that's, that's not a Bible parable, if you will. It's the story, the, the parable of two castles. But before I tell it, I want to remind us of something, that life for most people is difficult to manage. That the juggling act of life is one in which most of us feel like we drop the ball all the time. Or there are too many balls. Or they're bowling pins, not balls, and one of them goes crazy and hits you in the head. And managing life is often difficult when we don't often know exactly what we're doing. Or sometimes we confuse who we're doing it for, or how we do it, or why we do it. So the parable of two castles. The first is by a little boy on a beach. His tools are a bucket, some popsicle sticks, and a spoon or a shovel, a little one. And he builds away all day. On his knees, he scoops and packs the sand into the bucket. And with one big lift and heave and hoe, he dumps the bucket upside down. There he has, you know, the first century point in the castle. And so he builds away. And to the delight of our small architect, a tower is created, and then a wall, and then a moat. Popsicle sticks become bridges. Sandcastles become the things of glory. Our second castle is built by not a boy, but a man. Big city, busy streets, rumbling traffic. You have a man in his office. He doesn't build with sand, he builds with portfolios. He builds with OPM, other people's money. <laughs> he holds the phone in one hand, the keyboard in the other. Numbers are juggled, contracts are signed. Much to the delight of the man, a profit is made. They're two builders of two castles. They actually have much in common. They shape granules into grandeur. They see nothing and turning it into something. They're diligent and determined. But this is where their similarities cease. Because what one knows that the other does not is that the tide is coming. And that the tide will rise and that the end will come. And so for the boy, 
as each wave slaps an inch closer to his castle of grandeur, he looks with excitement. He anticipates the waves. He cheers as the waves crash closer and closer to his castle. The boy does not panic. He is not surprised. The pounding waves simply remind him that the end is inevitable. That they will take his castle back into the deep. The man, however, does not know this secret. But he should, because like the boy, there are waves of days, weeks, months, and years. And as the man has grown over, older, the days, weeks, months, and years have flown by faster and faster. The man does not know the secret that time will take your castles. The boy is prepared. The man is not. The man panics. The boy is at peace. When the great wave crashes into the boy's castle one last time and his masterpiece is sucked out into the heart of the sea, the boy will pick up his tools, take the hand of his father, smile at what was, and let his father take him home. The man, on the other hand, will fight diligently, dutifully, but with great panic to hold on to what was his. The man will do all he can to make sure that he doesn't lose all he has worked for. In the end, he will just simply wish he had known. See, the child knew what the adult did not. The boy knew he wasn't building for himself. The boy knew that everything he built with was not his. The boy knew that the end would come sooner or later. And the boy knew that he would build accordingly, be ready for the end, and take the hand of his father to go home. The man lived for the stuff of life. The boy lived for the hand and the smile, the well done of the Father. It reminds me a lot of a series of parables that Jesus tells near the end of his earthly life. Matthew 24, Matthew 25. We find a series of parables about the end. The first is about a homeowner and a thief. And how the thief comes without warning. And the point of that parable in Matthew 24 is that we should watch and always be ready for the end. For that matter, for the return of Christ. The three following parables demonstrate how we are to be ready, how we are to be prepared, rather. There's a parable of two kinds of servants that teach us that we are and will be held responsible in the end. 
There's a parable of 10 virgins that teach us that we should live ready and ever watching. And there's a parable of what's called the talents, or as my Bible's gonna call it, the parable of the bags of gold. And this parable reminds us of what readiness looks like to be productive with all we've been given, to invest what we've been given for the end. So this is how it reads, Matthew chapter 25. I'm not gonna read all those parables to us, but I do wanna read this one. And I wanted you to see this context because several of these parables are gonna say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then they're gonna tell a story about the time of the end. And so Matthew 25 verse 14 says again, it will be like a man going on a journey. And anytime we read something like it, we should certainly do our diligence to find out what is it referring to. It would be what is referred to at the beginning of chapter 25. That verse says, at that time, Matthew 25, 1, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And that parable says some of them were foolish wasted right their oil and others were watchful and ready and remained till the end and the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins so virgins so here it says again it is the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them and apparently his wealth was quite a bit of wealth because it says to one he gave five bags of gold to another, two bags of gold. And to another, one bag. Each according to his ability. And then the master went on his journey. Now I just want to pause there for a moment. You may know this as the parable of the talents. Because many of the translations of the Bible translate this word as talent. And they're not actually translating, they're transliterating. The word in Greek is talaton. It is the word from which our word talent comes from. But in Greek in that day, it did not mean talent like we mean talent. We think talents are aptitudes. They're, they're, they're specially endowed skills. They're not just something you learn, but something you are given. Something that in a sense has been entrusted to you. And so you can see where the word origin has a bit of link to this. What I love sometimes, and I don't point this out very often, but people, <clears throat> Christians get goofy about the funniest of things, right? We love to argue about stuff. And one of those things is Bible translations, right? So I'm just going to read to you what the ESV, which is the the better educated version of choice for churches who like to know more than most. Now, if you use an ESV, that's not meant as an insult towards you. 
only towards those who would imply that the ESV is the only version you should ever be reading. By the way, I've been around the, my version is the only version, my entire Christian life. I had intense arguments in my first pastorate, me as a 18, 19 year old, the other guy as a, I don't know, I thought he was like 80 or something, but I think he was probably in his 40s. <laughs> but he was convinced that the King James was Paul's Bible and therefore the only Bible for all of us, right? In fact, the King James predated Jesus somehow in his arguments. They made no sense to me whatsoever. And so the ESV says it this way. It says, for it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey. Notice it's the same so far. Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. It says property instead of wealth. Okay. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. They say the same thing. Except the ESV uses the word talent, and the NIV uses the phrase bags of gold. Why would one say talent and the other say bags of gold? Because the translators of the NIV recognize that most of us will misinterpret the word talent. And they want us to understand it in a Greek-Roman sense. And so they are giving us the, to use a technical phrase, the functional equivalent of the phrase rather than the original word. Now, this may not matter a hill of beans to you, but this I just find funny because we get caught up in using words like talent and knowing what it means. And what does it mean? It means a very large amount of money. So the NIV says bags of gold. And those of us that are like Bible translation snobs, Say, how dare you translate it bags of gold? It means a whole lot of money. <laughs> this is where I like to just make fun of us as Christians sometimes. Excuse me that. <clears throat> Five bags of gold, two bags of gold, one bag of gold. You get the picture, don't you? It's a lot of stuff. And more importantly, it's a lot of cash. Now, I just went after a search to try to figure out how much is a bag of gold worth today? Well, yeah. Yeah, more than I got. Right? So a talent, a talaton in the Greek sense would be, it, it's not an amount of money, it's amount of weight. And it would weigh, depending on the currency, whether you were talking silver or gold or, or whatever, somewhere between 58 and 80 pounds. So imagine you're entrusted with a bag of gold. Maybe you're the guy with one. A bag of gold, somewhere between 58 and 80 pounds. You know what you are at that point? Yes. Yeah, 70 pounds of gold today. I looked it up this week. 70 pounds of gold today would be worth roughly $1.4 million. That's the one bag. What about the guy with five? Story goes on. Right? To one, five bags. To another, two bags. To another, 
one bag each according to his ability, went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. He invested it. It doesn't tell us how. It just tell us, tells us that he put it to work and he gained five more. And so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. He was protecting it. Now this parable starts to sound like it's about money and investments. And actually there's much to teach us here about money and investments, but it's not really the primary point of the parable. After a long time, verse 19 says, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the man who'd received five bags of gold brought the other five. And master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied a very familiar phrase for people who've been Christians for very long. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. Two more. Three, three million dollars. Well, 2.8. Who's counting? His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received one bag of gold came and he said, Master, I knew you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid about what had been entrusted to me. I was afraid. In fact, I was afraid of what you had entrusted to me. I was afraid of you with what you had entrusted to me. And so I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. And I forgot where it is, but I know X marks the spot. So I bet, no, it doesn't say that. <laughs> so somewhere out there hidden in, you always hear these things like somewhere hidden in Colorado is a treasure that's been buried and there are clues scattered across the internet and pirates showed up and it, it all, you know, Johnny Depp was there. I, know. <laughs> I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, if we really think about it, he had it wrong at a lot of levels. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, he had it wrong at the most fundamental level. He misunderstood the master. And because he misunderstood the master, he misunderstood the assignment. But I think he also misunderstood what belonged to the master. More specifically, he under misunderstood who belonged to the master. Here's what belongs to you, which really what should belong to the masters more than the one bag. Because he gave it to the servant to be put to work. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered what I have not where I have not scattered seed, well then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. Again, this seems like a money parable. 
put it on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. It turns out there really is nothing new under the sun. We have a running joke in our family that it all seems to be a scam to make money. There's nothing new under the sun. So take the bag of gold from him, the one who was given one, and give it to the one who has ten bags. Kind of an interesting thought. He gave the ten back to the master, and now the master says the one who has ten. I don't know that I noticed that while I was writing this, so that's something for me to chase another time. Sorry, I'm just making a note to myself. You make notes, don't you? I'm allowed to make notes, aren't I? <laughs> For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So, or and, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fairly harsh words from the lips of Jesus. We know in context this has to do with the end. It sounds like Jesus is maybe saying that we've been given a certain amount of money in life and we better invest it. And when we get to the end, we got to pay up. And if we don't pay up right, then we go to hell. And if we do pay up right, we go to heaven. But that would be a gross misinterpretation of the parable. For one, Parables have a context, and you have to read everything in context, and nothing else about the teaching of Jesus would suggest that. Two, the bags of gold given to the servants were not theirs. They were the masters, right? Did they deserve the bags of gold? I doubt it. I mean, what? who gets to say to their boss, I deserve uh, 1.4 million times five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just give it to me all up front. Because I deserve it. I pr I'll prove it to you. I'll earn it. I'll even return your investment. And notice that in the end, even the bags of gold given to all three servants were an act of grace. And I think we have to start with grace when we really want to think about the kingdom of heaven. And there's plenty of teaching in the kingdom of heaven that would remind us that salvation happens purely by grace. So I just don't want us to forget. This really is about how we manage, or if I'm going to use the biblical word, steward what has been entrusted to us as we live as a part of the kingdom of heaven knowing that there is a time where the master will return. And this gives us some idea of the master's expectations about what has been entrusted to us, what we do with it until his return. Does that make some sense? I just don't want us to misunderstand. So if I'm thinking managing life is a juggle and it's difficult and sometimes the bowling pin wipes, whops me right upside the head, then how do I keep my priorities right and in right balance and how do I keep my priorities in front of me? And at some level I have to ask myself, what have I been given and what should I do with what I've been given and how should I manage 
what has been entrusted to me in life. And so I want to make this point to us because I think it's significant. I said this a second ago to note that the, the third servant misunderstood the assignment because he misunderstood the master. He wasn't willing to take any risks because he believed the master was one to be feared. He wasn't willing to step out and see what he could do or what God would do because he was afraid of what had been entrusted to him, but more so he was afraid of the one who had entrusted it to him. And so it often means that misunderstanding God causes me to misunderstand the assignment in life. So I want to say it this way. This is the one thing this is about. How I see Jesus alters and changes and shapes how I see everything else in life. That's the one thing. How I see Jesus alters. I think we have that for the screen. Do we have that, the one thing? Yes. Yeah, there we go. How I see Jesus alters how I see everything else in life. If I misunderstand God, I misunderstand everything else. If I misunderstand God, if I misunderstand Jesus, I misunderstand my life, I misunderstand other people's lives, I misunderstand my talents, I misunderstand what has been entrusted to me, I misunderstand what is mine and what is not mine, and I become like the third servant. I play it safe, I bury my talent, I have no gain for the master when I misunderstand the heart of the master. A wrong view of the master means I have a wrong view of the assignment. It means I can ignore the master's heart, <clears throat> the master's desires, and the master's investment in me. And if you think about it, a lot of people reject God out of this same sort of issue, that there's a sense of I don't like the assignment that's been placed on me by God. I don't like the rules that are laid out for us by God. I don't like the expectations. And if I don't like the expectations, then I don't like the one with the expectations. So I'm just going to say that the one with the expectations must not exist because then I'm free to live by my own expectations. You see how this works? When we misunderstand the master, we misunderstand the assignment. How I see Jesus alters and changes and molds and shapes how I see everything else in life. And so I'll be straight with you. I'm a Christian. I understand Jesus as the Savior. I understand Jesus as God in the flesh. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Three uh, persons, one God, Trinity, right? How long you want to take? We could, we could explore that, you know, forever. We will actually explore that, I think, for eternity. It's part of why that's a mystery on this side, because there are things we don't have yet figured out on this side. And so one of the more subtle temptations of life 
is to misunderstand God. But all of my friends who reject God don't really see it and frame it that way. But as a Christian who reads my Bible, if I'm reading it right, I can look at them with compassion and frame it in a way that I can say, you know what, I can see where it's super subtle. But if they misunderstand God and what God expects, if they misunderstand Jesus and who Jesus is, then of course they're going to misunderstand everything else. This is that moment where I bring up the thing that makes us all uncomfortable, so I'm just telling you up front. When Christians expect the world to live by our values, we just want to vote our values into being. Both sides do that, by the way. But notice that our values are shaped by our understanding of who the master really is. And for my friends who don't believe in God, we still, those of us that don't believe in God still have a master. In fact, frankly, we think we are the master. In fact, in my original parable, right, the two castles, what the man thought was that he was the master of his own kingdom. And what the boy knew is that he lived for the well done of the father, right? So there's this subtle, subtle, subtle thing to misunderstand God, and that causes us to misunderstand the rest of life. So what I want to do is I want to walk back through it one more time. Knowing that how I see Jesus alters how I see everything else in life, I want to talk about, from a Christian perspective, four not-so-subtle temptations that pop up regarding the way we manage life. Is that fair? Four not-so-subtle temptations. I'm going to grab my handy-dandy little bench over here. Four not-so-subtle temptations regarding how I manage life. Number one, the not-so-subtle temptation to believe that I am the king of my own life. Yes, many of my friends who are not Christians misunderstand this part. And so they believe they are the king of their own life or the queen of their own life. But let's be honest, as Christian people, we often misunderstand this one too. That it's easy to confuse ourselves with a master. Verse 14. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. I think, we think... Well, I go on journeys. And if we're a business leader of some kind, we go, I entrust things to other people. If we're a parent, we have little people in our lives we entrust things to. So it's very, very easy 
to confuse ourselves with the master. And even for Christians, there's a not-so-subtle temptation to believe, you know what, I am the king of my own life. But all of this, when I think I am the king, distracts me from actually managing what has been entrusted to me. Because what happens if I think I am the king of my own life, then everything I have is mine. And so I begin to think that my stuff is mine, that my kids are mine, that my spouse is mine. Yeah, let's hope he lands somewhere not on us. Number one, the not-so-subtle temptation to believe that I am the king of my own life. Number two, we Christians struggle with this. The not-so-subtle temptation to compare my talents to other people's talents. Now remember, the word talent doesn't mean talent. Let me say it a longer way. The, the not-so-subtle Temptation, In other words, the very obvious temptation to compare what has been entrusted to me versus what has been entrusted to others. This is the part of us that always wants to say, but it's not fair. Well, if I had what he had, if I had what she had, then I too could do what they do, right? If, if I... You know, if I had the gifts they had, if I had the talents they had, if I had the cash they had. We play the comparison game all the time as human beings, and this certainly applies outside Christian circles, but I think us Christians are not immune to this. There are certain um, strategic life investments, assets, if you will, that have been entrusted to us. Let's think about what those are, right? To each one, he gave five bags of gold to, to one, five bags of gold to another, two bags of gold to another, one bag. Now, now, what do you, what do you bet? Jesus didn't say this, but what do you bet the guy with one really didn't appreciate that he was the guy with one? In fact, it says each according to his own ability which means the master knew where his maturity level was. So what do you bet the guy with one sat around half the time at least going, well, I know I did X marks the spot and threw my bag of gold up in the mountains of Colorado somewhere, but this is not fair because the guy with five, think about it, he could lose a bag of gold and still have four bags of gold left. If I had four more bags of gold, I could invest my one bag of gold, but I don't have five bags of gold. I have one bag of gold, and I'm afraid of the master. So I buried it in Colorado. What are the strategic life investments entrusted to us? How about time? We've only got so much. It ticks away every day. I say to people all the time, gosh, it just goes by so fast these days. You know time is going at the same pace that it was when I was three? What has changed is my perception. 
of time. And in a sense, my perception of how much I have left. In fact, the older I get, the littler I have left, and therefore the faster it seems it goes, right? What about family? You know, we've been entrusted with family at some level. You may be married, you may not. You may have kids, you may not. You have parents. I know you have parents because you're here. You may or may not have a good relationship with any of those levels of family. But we have family. We've been entrusted with family. What do we do with that? It all depends on how we see the master. What about, what about literal talents? You know, like our gifts, our abilities, our skills. What about the innate talents that we've been given? We've all been given something. Or to use a spiritual term, what about our spiritual gifts? Right, those divine abilities given to us as the Spirit of God was placed into our hearts when we were saved. We were given some divine endowment, some special way of serving the kingdom of God, serving in the church. What am I doing with my spiritual gifts? I thought about energy. I thought about personality. I thought about the experiences of my life. I mean, what about my attitude? What am I doing? How am I managing the attitude? Am I managing it like Jesus is really the king or not? What about the opportunities presented before me? Because there are opportunities presented to me that aren't presented to other people. Yes, us pastors do get caught up in this same comparison game. Right? I, there are guys I went to college with, guys I went to seminary with. We're friends on Facebook. It's very easy to look at their ways of serving or their dynamics and go, but their church is, this gets dangerous, doesn't it? Their church is this big. What does that mean about me? Notice who the focus is here. Notice the opposite. Their church is this small. What does that say about me? The comparison game is about insecurity either direction. I'm better than, I'm worse than. I wrote one more thing in my notes. I think it's worth mentioning. It's hard to think of this as a strategic life investment, but what about my wounds? What do my wounds say about my trust in the master. What do my wounds say about my reliance on the strength of the master? Because one of the things that happens in this world, and we all know this to be true, is that our wounds become an opportunity to be ministered to and to minister to somebody else, don't they? No one understands grief like someone else who is grieving in the same way. No one understands an alcoholic like another alcoholic. Right? No one understands the trauma of something that is horrible, unspeakable, and we could fill in the blank with, with various forms of abuse or rape or some of the worst things that humanity do to each other. 
No one understands the trauma of those things like someone else who's been in your shoes. So what about our wounds? Number three. Number three. The not-so-subtle temptation to squander all of my life on this life. I mean, we should expect that those of us who understand Jesus is the king should understand this life and the afterlife as different things. And we should expect that those of us who experience and know Jesus is king should understand that the afterlife is a bigger deal, more strategic, more important, longer. I mean, eternal is... Yeah, like infinite, right? You remember in math when you started using symbols? You took an eight and you turned it sideways, right? And you went, what in the world is this talking about? That came after A's and B's and C's started entering into math. And, you know, I mean, the the complexity of the universe. You think about, like, the universe, we have seen into the universe. We have something that no other part of humanity has ever had. Right with, uh, with the Hubble telescope, with this new telescope that we have in space. When, 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 when the ancients used to look in the sky and they didn't have the lights we have so they could see the skies much better. In a sense, I'm jealous. Right? right? They lived that way. We go camping to pretend we live that way. <laughs> they have an advantage over us in a sense because they could see the Milky Way as the Milky Way. But what we realize now today is that what we see is some star in the distance is an entire galaxy spinning. And we have looked as far as the, as the telescope can possibly look, and we have yet to find the beginning or the end of the universe. The world has that at its disposal. We Christian people should understand that infinite, we really infinite, But how often do we squander what's been entrusted to us on the pleasure of a moment? How often do we squander what's been entrusted to us on now, not thinking about the eternal, about the infinite? There was an expectation in this story based on the previous stories, the parables that Jesus had told, that there would be a time when the master would return and that they would have to give an account for how they managed, how they stewarded life, what had been entrusted to them. So, excuse me, this idea of stewardship becomes fundamental to understanding what it means to be a disciple. What I have is not mine. It is entrusted to me for a season. The gifts, the talents, the wounds, they're not given to me for me. They're given to me for the king and the kingdom, of which I'm not the king or the queen. This becomes a way of understanding life, that life is not to be squandered, it is to be stewarded. Again, to use the biblical term. 
And so stewards are good managers of what has been entrusted to them. In fact, this is such an important term that here at Harvest, we call our leaders who serve, that are, that are uh, non-clergy type leaders, non-pastoral type leaders, non-staff non, non leaders, right? We call our leaders at that level stewards. I have been a part of no other churches that do that. I didn't invent it. I didn't come up with it. I inherited it. It was entrusted to me when I came to Harvest. And so some churches will call them uh, elders, deacons, board members. Right? The last church I served in called them, I don't, I don't know. We came up with some crazy term that sounded like CEOs. I didn't create that system either, by the way. What our stewards realize is a couple of things. One, we are servants first. That's the deacon concept. That anything we do as leaders is modeled and lived by, by servanthood. And so we don't put people into that level of leadership who aren't serving. And people who are invited to become servants as stewards are people we expect to keep serving. A couple of weeks ago, we threw the back to school bash and everywhere I looked, I saw our stewards serving. Because we realized that much has been entrusted, and I serve as a steward as well, much has been entrusted to us. That the mission of harvest has been entrusted to us. That the people of harvest have been entrusted to us. That the gifts of harvest have been entrusted to us. That the literal physical assets of harvest have been entrusted to us. And we want to manage them or steward them well. Does this make sense? This becomes the way you and I are expected to manage our life. Servants first. Managing what is not ours, but what has been entrusted to us. One last temptation, number four. The not-so-subtle temptation to trade the affirmation of God for the affirmation of humanity. I mean, the, the clearest way I could say this one is to live for what other people think. Right? I mean, in American life, we tend to we tend to live for a couple of things, if we're really honest, about the gods or the American idols, if you will. And one of those has to be cash, talents, bags of gold. You can definitely see where there are people who live for the stuff of life. One of those is the lusts of life. All the other desires, right? The greed, the power, the literal lust in the sexual sense. That there, there are all those things that, that we Americans tend to live for rather than living for the master. But one of the things we tend to live for is the affirmation of all the people around us. We like the attaboys, you know, the, the, the great job. We like the applause of earth. How about I post and see what kind of, yeah. Right? I mean, the temptation to do this has never been stronger. 
than it is today. To trade the affirmation of God for the affirmation of humanity. I would note for you that the commendation of God in this case was fourfold, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. There was affirmation that was greater that came from the master. You have been faithful with a few things. There was encouragement that was greater that came from the master. I will put you in charge of many things. There was responsibility that was greater that came from the master. Come and share your master's happiness, your master's joy. There was greater joy that came from the master. Everything the master offers is better than what the world offers. But we look for affirmation in this world, encouragement in this world, responsibility in this world, happiness and joy in this world. And it's a not-so-subtle temptation to trade those things from God and heaven and eternity for here and now. Because if we're honest, it feels kind of good. To hear the applause, not of heaven, but the applause of the men and women around us. Four not-so-subtle temptations. My guess would be, I mean, I've told us two parables today, right? The, the boy and the man, the two castles. And I've read for us the parable of the <clears throat> talented bags of gold. Parable of the talents. I told us when we began the series masterclass that parables offer us, among other things, a mirror to look into and see ourselves. So my question for you is, where are you in the journey? Who are you in the story? And at some level, I want to ask, have you settled things with the master? Have you settled that the master is the master? Is Jesus your king? We always end our service with two prayers. One's a prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus to be your king today, your savior today, your master today, you can pray with me right here, right now to settle that issue. And then I'll have a second prayer for us. It's a prayer of discipleship, really, for those of us who've already made Jesus our king. But I really want you to think about who you are in the story. If you need salvation from Jesus today, you pray with me just like this. You pray a simple prayer. It's not about the words. It's about the heart behind it. Dear Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive my sin. Please forgive me for misunderstanding you in life. For squandering all that I've been given in this world. Jesus, thank you that you came, that you died on the cross because I do this. That you were buried and you, you're alive today. You rose again from the grave. You defeated death. I put my faith in you, Jesus. I ask you to take over my life, be my king, help me to manage life for you. And one day, 
Give me the joy of taking you by the hand and seeing your smile walking home. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, that's powerful. We would love, love, love to celebrate that. If that's you today, please, please let us know. You can let me know on a communication card or online on the digital communication card. You can let me know by just finding me. You can tell someone next to you, someone you came with, but we would love to celebrate that. Just let us know. I would imagine a lot of you, even online, made a decision like that some time ago. And yet you still see yourself in the story somewhere, and there's some adjustments that this story is, is pulling you to. Maybe you would pray this prayer of application with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you that everything I have is by your grace. And so I'm asking that your grace would change how I see you and how I see everything else in my life. That your grace would change how I manage my life. And so Jesus, I ask that your love and grace would remind me every day that you're the king of my life. That you would remind me to let go of comparisons and insecurities. To let go of past failures and sins. That your love and grace would remind me to invest my now life for my forever life. That your love and grace would remind me to focus in on your affirmation, to wait for your smile, to let go of what other people think. In essence, I'm asking that my life would become a reflection of your love and grace. We pray that not only for ourselves, but for each other, for our church. Pray that we can bring that to our city and to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I love you guys. Parables are good.